thanks for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. This is David Perkins, and we're so glad that you're listening. Hey, if you're a part of our family meeting online or in person, we want to encourage you to get connected at Radiant Church KC across all social media platforms. God is doing something incredible in Kansas City, and we love connecting with you, whether it's through our app or even through all the content available on our YouTube page. Hey, our prayer is that God uses this message to change your life and that you could become a dynamic disciple of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this message. Great to be here. It's great to be here. Yeah, there's all kinds of NFL jokes I could tell, David, but... The Chiefs are amazing and the Lions are not, so I'm going to keep my jokes to myself. But uh, my wife and I lived in Kansas City for a couple of years in the early 90s when, let's see, Joe Montana was the quarterback. That was that long ago. Some of you are like, I don't remember that. It's because you weren't born yet. Uh, but it was, it was fun to be here and to see the love that you guys all have for your Chiefs. How many of you will lend me some of your football faith? And believe with me for a revival among the Detroit Lions. No? Okay. I see how you're going to be. Great. Hey, it's a joy to be here this morning. I love this church. I love your pastors. David and Renata are some of our favorite people. I was saying uh, in the first service that our church, Radiant in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which uh, we planted 27 years ago, out of all the people that have ministered in our church, I believe David... Uh, whether it's Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, special meetings, classes, has taught more than any other guest minister that we've ever had. And that's because he's our favorite. And so we love your pastors. Don't you guys love Pastor David and Renata? So, and not only that, but he's, uh, David's one of my closest friends and uh, we've been running together for 20 years. It was 20 years ago he came for the first time. I sent two of my kids to Colorado to be a part of their uh, internship out there, and uh, it's impacted our family. David has impacted our family uh, and impacted my kids and our church uh, for many, many years. He's an incredible, incredible friend, but just more than anything, I respect him because he's a man of integrity. He loves Jesus. He loves the church. He loves his wife. He loves all of you, brags on you guys all the time, and I really believe what you guys are a part of here is really special. It's really, really special. And I say that because sometimes you can be in the middle of a miracle and miss it because you're so used to it. But I want you to know that what God is doing here, this is not normal. Uh, last night, I got a chance to walk through your new building and man, that is phenomenal. It's incredible. Are you guys excited about, about a year from now? Tell you what, it is a sweet building. It's gonna, it's gonna look really, really good. But more than anything, what I love about it is prayer is gonna be at the center of it. He walked me upstairs, showed me it's now a gym. It's gonna be a prayer room. And uh, I, I really believe that thousands of lives are gonna be changed out of that building. City's gonna be transformed. Generation's gonna be raised up. It's gonna be a legacy building. So um, excited about that. And it's a joy to be here with you guys uh, this morning. I'm gonna bring a message this morning called The Battle for the Altar. And so if you brought your Bible, let's do this real quick, roll call. If you have your Bible, hold it up. I want to see your Bibles. Physical paper Bibles. Okay, there we go. Bibles, I love that. That's great. There's mine. All right, got mine. If you have it on your digital device, go ahead and hold that up because that counts. Now, if you did not bring your Bible because you've memorized it and it's so deep in your heart, you don't need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands as well. Okay, I thought so. All right, great. Anyways, turn with me to Judges chapter 6. 
Judges chapter 6. And Lord, today we just ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come and open up the eyes of our heart and give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, your word is a, your word is a sword and it oftentimes divides between soul and spirit and gives us spiritual insight. Holy Spirit, we need you to give that to us tonight today. So would you come, illuminate your word, open up our hearts, give us soft, pliable hearts to say yes and amen to what you're saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 6, the battle for the altar. Look with me here at verse number 11. We're just going to start by reading the word of God. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hands of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I believe with all of my heart that when you look at the story of Gideon, through the lens of not just what we see in the natural in the world around us, but if you as a believer can look through the eyes of faith, if you can see through the lens of faith and realize that everything that happens in the natural has a spiritual origin first. It's not the other way around. It's not like what we do in the natural affects things in the spiritual unseen realm. It's the exact opposite. And if we today can look through that lens and read the story of Gideon, what we will realize is that the moment that Gideon was living in was eerily emblematic and similar to where we are today, especially as the 21st century American church. If you go almost anywhere else in the world and see the church, you're going to see a church that has experienced persecution, that is really being purified by the difficulties of standing out as a countercultural movement within the culture that it lives in, whether that's the Middle East, Asia, even Africa and South America. I have a, my good friend here in the front row, Toby Cavanaugh, he came with me. He's the director of our school of ministry that we have. But he and his wife spent almost 10 years living in China as missionaries, ministering to the underground church and establishing churches on college campuses. And he knows what I'm saying because I've experienced it as I've traveled is that the church for 2,000 years in most places has experienced as common pressure and also standing out differently than the rest of culture. In America, it's uniquely different because over our 2,000 plus years of history, there's been parallel tracks of Christianity and the church and culture. We are really one of the first generations that has begun to see the divergence of where culture is getting further and further away of what they consider norms and what they consider morality and what they consider family and faith and religion, all those things from where the church is. And when that divergence is taking place, we're experiencing 
the pull and the tension, much like Gideon experienced in this moment that we just read. See, Gideon was living in an hour where years and years earlier, God had brought Joshua and the children of Israel into the promised land. They possessed it just like God promised. They lived in homes that they did not build. They ate from fields that they did not plant. They drank from vineyards that they did not cultivate. And God had fulfilled his promises to them. I mean, what an amazing generation that must have been, right? To be with Joshua and Caleb and to see God by his mighty right hand defeat your enemies, conquer the land, take possession of it. But the Bible then records, it says that after Joshua, there came a generation that rose up that did not know the Lord or his works. They didn't know any, they didn't, they didn't even know the stories and they had never firsthand seen God move. And what began to happen is while they took possession as the head and not the tail, over time, they began to accommodate the culture that was around them. So this is why God said, be different than the Canaanites. Utterly wipe them out, destroy them, because I know they're going to contaminate you. Israel didn't do that. And in fact, instead of them changing the culture around them, they, they began to slowly drift into the same idolatry and lifestyles and belief systems that the Canaanites did around them, worshiping their gods in addition to worshiping Yahweh. And as that began to happen, they began to lose the favor and the blessing, and they began to lose hope. Because as we read in the story, the Amalekites and the Midianites, who were these nomadic people, would come in on their dromedaries and their camels and their, their horses, and they would come in at harvest time when Israel had been planting and cultivating their farms and raising their animals. And at the time of harvest, when they should be reaping the harvest and increasing and prospering and building their, their future and living out that Deuteronomy 28 promises of God of prosperity, what began to happen is the Amalekites and the, and the Midianites would sweep in and take all their crops that they harvested and take all their new herds of animals. And then they would Scorched earth burn everything behind them, and then they would leave. Well, Israel, that happened one time. Then Israel went through a whole nother year of doing that again, and the Midianites did it again. And you know, it began to happen year after year after year, and something happened in the soul, in the, the collective consciousness of Israel, where they gave up their homes, they gave up the promise, they gave up any chance of defeating the enemy, and living in the promises of God, and they retreated to the caves, in the cliffs, because the Amalekites wouldn't attack them in the caves. And the Amalekites, they stopped planting fields because they thought, why do it? Because the enemy's gonna come in anyways. And so they stopped planting, and they stopped developing their herds, and they went into a survival mode of just hoping to make it through the next day. And that's where we find Gideon. Gideon's living in the caves, in the strongholds. This particular day, he's come down out of the cave and he's gone to a wine press. A wine press is a really low, like depressed, almost about the size of a kiddie pool that was dug out of limestone that when you cultivated grapes, you'd put them in there, stomp on them, drain them out. And that's where you'd collect the juice that would become the wine. 
But now in this particular instance, it becomes Gideon's hiding place. Gideon sneaks down out of the caves. He goes into the wine press. He's got some wild grains of wheat that he is trying to kind of shuck off and eat. Just a handful of like, think of granola. He's just trying to eat something without the enemy seeing so that he can sneak back up into his cave. And on this particular day, as he's hiding out in the wine press, the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord, probably a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the Son, the Word of the living God. The angel of the Lord shows up standing at the edge of the winepress, and he says, you mighty man of valor. Now, just imagine, you're trying to hide. You've got PTSD from being attacked, and you think nobody sees you, and then the Lord, and how many know when the Lord shows up, he doesn't speak softly. This is not, hey, you mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And he shocked the soul of Gideon in that particular moment. And I believe the moment that Gideon was in, a time of cultural shifting, a time where Israel had come under a satanic influence of an alternative spirit of Baal, a time when Israel had PTSD, and had been overpowered and stepped into survival mode is very similar to the moment we find the American church right now. Where we are living in a, a time period that so many in the church have given up hope. Hope for their kids, hope for the next generation, hope for, hope for the, the possibility of revival or an awakening taking place in in this generation, we've kind of believed the narrative that the church's best days in America are behind us and that there's just a few of us that, you know, we, we come to church, but culture's changed, everything's changed. It's postmodernism. It's, you know, it's post-Christian era. And, and you know, the, the days of, of the gospel really penetrating our culture, it's really over. And so we're just kind of hunkered down in survival mode. But in reality, just like Gideon, we are living at an intersection, I believe, in the spiritual reality, the realm, is that we're in a time period that is defined as a battle for the altar. What altar will be established in the midst of this generation? And it starts in the church. It starts with us personally. But it moves out from us individually to the church, but then really it has an effect on culture as a whole. A lot of language that's used in the church, renewal, revival, awakenings, but renewal is what happens on the inside of us that produces a revival through us that then transform culture around us, which is an awakening. And I believe that Gideon was living in just such a moment because if you look over in chapter six, out of this experience, God gives him a mandate. The mandate in verse 25 and verse 26 was, he says, I want you to pull down the altar of Baal that your father has built, cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and then build the altar of the Lord to your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. That's what was coming. That's what God was trying to awaken Gideon to partner with him in, but before he could do that, he had to get Gideon's attention and he had to restore hope and he had to get him to see his true identity, not as a victim, but as one who was committed and commissioned by God to tear down altars. That's what Gideon's name means. 
the one who pulls down altars, the one who tears down. This is who he is. But yet he's not tearing down, he's hiding out. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever tried to hide something. My kid, we raised three kids. They're all grown up, two are married, and we've got uh, three grandchildren, one in heaven, and my son is holding out. He's a bachelor till the rapture. He just refuses to get married. <laughs> he's 28 and six foot seven and blonde and just killing us. So, but when, you know, Jared was, was a teenager, he, would, he was sneaky. And he was always like getting up in the middle of the night and going into the kitchen. And teenage boys will eat you out of house and home. And I, I can't tell you how many times, like in the middle, I'm a light sleeper, so I woke up. I'm like, I think somebody broke into the house. I go out into the kitchen, and there's my son, like, eating everything that is, is like locust, moving, like, eviscerating food, not even chewing it. It's like, it's like, is that a dust cloud? No, that's the shrapnel of the pie my son eating at the table. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. I mean, because I caught him. I picture Gideon in this moment in a wine press, like, what? the Lord's speaking to him, saying, you mighty men of valor, the Lord is with you. But notice that even in his shock and awe, he doesn't, he doesn't hesitate, he, he immediately goes into his pain points. He says, Lord, if you're with me, why has all this happened to me? Why has all of this happened to us? And if you're with us, then where are all of your wonderful deeds, your miracles that we heard about from, you know, our forefathers? Where, where are your miracles? If you're with us, why, why is it that we're in decline and we're hiding and we're in survival mode? Why is it that you've allowed us to come to this place? That we're under the influence of an alternative spirit when we were dedicated to be the people of God, under the favor of God, to be the head, not the tail, first and not last, blessed and not cursed, but yet here we are. And what's interesting, I think, I think for probably all of us, we have pain points in our life where we ask God why questions. It's like, God, why did you allow me to go through what I've gone through? Why is my journey the way that it was? Why are my kids not serving God? Why is my marriage in tension? Why, why do I feel like I'm in an era? I, I've had so many young people say to me over the last couple of years, I'm not sure I wanna get married. I'm not sure I wanna have kids. Because look at the world that we're living in. It's like, I, I never wanted to live in a world like this. I had such hopes and dreams. God, why, why, why? We've all got our why points. We've all got our why questions. We've all heard stories of people. I've, I've grown up reading books on revival, reading books on spiritual awakenings, books by John Wesley and William Booth and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney. I've... I've from the age of 12, heard about revival, prayed and contended for revival. And yet throughout the years of pastoring and leading, I've seen spiritual decline. And I can't tell you how many tears I've cried at the front of prayer rooms asking God, move in generation, move in my kids. I want them to see what I've seen. I want them to experience it. But a lot of times those things that we long for, those dreams that we have in our heart, and even even, even the things that years ago, when you first encountered the Lord, you dreamed about seeing happen in your life, you've experienced a cool down in your faith and now there's disappointment and that's where we ask God, why? It's like, God, where, where are your miracles? Why is my journey the way that it is? Why is it difficult for me to overcome this sin? Why is it that I continue to kind of 
compromise and accommodate. You know, the beautiful thing about Gideon's conversation with the Lord is the Lord didn't answer him. God didn't say, well, let me, let me break it down for you. Let me, here, chat GPT, let me like, you punch it in. Here's the, here's the answers of why your world is the way it is. Here's, God doesn't do that. God's answer to Gideon when he asked all these questions, it says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might that is yours and know that I'm with you. Know that I'm with you. And I want to speak to you today as a fellow disciple of Jesus who has gone through pain, has gone through disappointment, has felt the burden of insecurity, has more questions than I have answers. Finding myself living in the middle of a generation where it feels like God has withdrawn. We're in, living in the midst of a culture where we're beginning to experience things that we never thought that we would experience. Things that are now called right that used to be called wrong. Things that used to be wrong that are now right. It seems like a culture that is antagonistic towards the gospel. And it's easy for us to withdraw into the cave. And to come out on Sundays to our little wine press and to get a little bit of wheat in our hands to get us through next week and to hope that the Amalekites and the Midianites don't see us. I want us to raise our expectations higher because not because we have the answers, but because he is with us and because you were created for the hour in which you live in. You were purposed for this moment, just like Gideon was, to be a mighty man or a woman of valor who contends in an hour for the battle of the altar for the next generation. One of the beautiful things about this church, it's in the heartbeat of your pastors, and it has always been, is a commitment to reach the next generation. My kids have been impacted by that. Your church, I mean, it's not normal for a church planner to start a church and say, oh, I'm going to start a conference too. You don't do that unless you have a passion and a burden and an assignment from the Lord to reach the next generation. But yet that's, that's significant. It's part of the special Gideon-like call of this house. And, and I'll tell you what God's answer always is to the darkest moments in history. It's always courageous leadership. This is what he was calling Gideon to, courageous leadership. Courage in this hour is discouraged. Give up your courage. Don't stand out. Don't be different. Consensus, ah, is the consensus. Just blend in. Don't say anything, tweet anything, post anything that is not going in the mainstream of acceptability. And we have a spirit of this age that has intimidated the church from being bold in our proclamation of who Jesus is. It has intimidated us not to be too overtly fanatical in our following Jesus. To just go ahead, you can worship Jesus on Sundays, but make sure that the altar of Baal is built in your living room and into your home and into your life, just like everybody else in the culture, or else you're going to stand out. And God says, no, that's not what you were called for. You were called to be a courageous leader. You were called to stand out. You were called to identify with God and with his cause. 
because God always raises up a courageous leader like Gideon, gives us the promise that he's going to be with us, and then calls us to do two things, to tear down the altars of Baal and to rebuild the altar of the Lord. That's what this generation you want to know right now, if you could pull back the veil of eternity right now, the, the spiritual realm right now, what you would see is not political arguments. Right now, what you would not see is not what the news is portraying. The news is showing you the natural fruit on the tree, but it's not showing you the root system of the spirit. And the root system of the spirit, there's one battle that's being waged in this present hour, and it's whose altar will be established. Will it be the altar of the Lord in the midst of a generation? Or will it be the altar of Baal? Before I talk about Baal real quick, let me, let me read to you this, this paragraph from a man named Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is a, an example to me of courageous wartime leadership. Winston Churchill's famous as being the prime minister of England during World War II, considered one of the greatest leaders of the previous generation. But what most people don't know about Winston Churchill is prior to World War II, he was a failed politician. And what they fail to realize is that when World War II was done, he basically had no more successes. They put him away. He was a man who England and the Allies needed at a particular time and place. And in that moment, he was a courageous leader. His first speech to Parliament in 1940 as he came into power said this, I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, that I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many long months to toil and to struggle. You've asked what our policy is. I will say it is to wage war with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against the monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer it in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory despite all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. This was what inspired a generation to rise up and say, no, we're not, we're not going to let tyranny take us over. We're not gonna allow the spirit of the age to dominate us. It just took one leader to stand up and everybody rallied. It turned the tide of World War II. And I believe we're in an hour right now, just like Gideon, where there is a, there is a subconscious collective way of, of thinking, a consensus where it's like, well, well, I know that things are crazy. I know that things seem off. I know that something's different. I just don't know how to respond. And sometimes in the church, what we have done is looked at the world and we've said, why are you, why, why is the world so dark? Why is the world so broken? But yet, long before God will ever judge the world, he will judge the church. Because he's standing over the winepress of the church in 2023, and he's saying, I didn't create you to hide. I created you to stand out in my presence and to be a prophetic voice to your generation. Because let me tell you something. You are either going to be a prophet to your culture or you will become a product of your culture. You cannot be both. And right now, uh, you know, we, we might have a tendency to think, well, what, you know, Gideon was confronting idolatry. 
you know, and idolatry was a big problem because if you read the story of Gideon, God's mandate <coughs> to Gideon was to go to your father's house where he's built an altar of Baal, tear it down with the Asherah pole, and then rebuild the altar of the Lord over the stronghold. And so you can read that and, and think to yourself, well, we're not confronting like demons and idols like Baal, are we? Well, let me, before you make that decision, let me tell you who Baal is. This is interesting. Over the last couple of years, I've done a deep dive into idolatry because Israel never stopped worshiping God, Yahweh. They just added Baal to it. It was syncretism. It's like we worship Yahweh, but yet because we're living among all these people culturally and because we're agricultural, we're also gonna worship Baal. So who is Baal? Well, Baal is a Canaanite god who is considered the god of storms. And this is significant. Actually, the name Baal in its etymological root means owner or one who dominates. So Baal was epitomized by a bull with long horns. And the Canaanites worshiped Baal because he was a storm god. And understand this, Israel now comes into the land and they're agricultural. So how do they make their living? How do they feed their families? How do they, how, how do they increase and survive? Well, you plant seed in the ground and you need, you need rain. You need water and grain to feed your sheep and your goats and your other animals so that they produce new animals. Without rain, you have no grain. Without grain, you have no increase. And so who do you pray to? The storm god, Baal. You pray for rain. This is why when Elijah shows up, he says the heavens are gonna be shut up for three and a half years. What was he doing? He was canceling Baal. He was saying Baal's not in charge of the rain, God is. And, but Israel had worshiped Baal because they were agricultural. And what that meant was if, 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 if I'm gonna prosper, if I'm gonna put money in my college fund for my kids, if I'm gonna have a comfortable retirement, if I'm gonna pay my house off, if I'm, if I'm gonna do those things, I've gotta go along with recognizing Baal as a storm god is in charge of what's going on here, so I have to pay him homage. Now, you might think to yourself, well, man, I would never worship Baal. But what's the modern equivalent of it? It's, if you were to go to New York City today and you were to walk down the financial district where we all have our retirements investments and where the stock market goes up and down, interest rates are determined, job markets are indicated, capitalism, which is the best form of, economic system, I believe, in the free world, but out front of Wall Street, there's a huge bronze bull. Isn't that interesting? And maybe we don't have bronze bulls in front of our homes, but how many decisions do we make that affect our convictions based on money, based on security, based on prosperity, based on comfort? 
based on fitting in. How many times do we go to our job and it's like, I can't take a stand at my workplace because it's going to cost me my job. Or I can't invest into the kingdom of God because of my retirement. And when the stock market's better, then I'm going to do better. And I've got to take care of Susie and Johnny. And I mean, how many decisions do we allow the spirit of this age and all that comes with it to affect us? We can say we don't worship idols, but I think here in America, our idols just have different, more sophisticated names. Now, how did you worship Baal? This is where it gets interesting. And by, by the way, I know this is heavy, but it's about to erp, turn. Here's how you worship Baal. <clears throat> you, uh, Baal required, number one, cutting, slicing the physical body. Its priests were emasculated or castrated. And another name for Baal was Moloch, which was child sacrifice. That was how you released Rain in its season for your crops. Let me put it to you this way. How do you get Baal to answer your prayers? Cutting, sexual perversion, emasculation, and child sacrifice. Modern terminology, climate change, economic stability, sexuality, gender ideology, and abortion. That's the American version of Baal. Baal just comes dressed up a little different in America, but it's the same old demon who comes promising, if you worship me and you accommodate me just a little bit culturally, then you're not going to need God. He's the counterfeit God who provides counterfeit rain, which is revival. But this is why God, in the midst of a generation in Israel that had compromised and accommodated, raised up a Gideon who said, nope, that's not how we're going. This is not what we're called to. We're tearing that altar down. Baal's altar, we're tearing it down, and then we're going to rebuild the altar of the Lord. What's the altar of the Lord? It's God's presence front and center. It's God searching for a generation of people who will bring about reformation in the church so that there can be transformation in our culture. Now, here's where the hope comes in. In February, I was in Mexico on vacation. Jane and I got away. We live in Michigan, which is like the Arctic Circle. So every once in a while, you got to like get someplace warm. And so we're in Mexico. And I took a stack of books with me to read. And David and I, as friends, have both read books on revival for years. And contended for revival. And you know, what sometimes concerns me is we can think so much about revival, but never experience it. We become great theorists, but not practitioners. And so I, was, I, I took a book with me to read, and it was Wednesday, February, I can't remember the exact date, but I was sitting in my chair, and my phone started just blowing up with texts from my friends all over the country. And they're going, are you seeing what's happening at Asbury? I'm like, what's going on at Asbury? And interestingly, I had one of the books I brought was a book that recounted the revival at Asbury in 1970. And I was, I was like one chapter deep in it. And my phone's like, and Jane's like, what? is that an emergency? I'm looking at it. My friends are like, no, I'm getting in the car. I'm going to Asbury right now. Are you seeing what's going on? Chapel service starts on a Wednesday. 
The guy who's speaking at the chapel, his name is Zach. He walks off the stage, thinks it's a complete failure. And then all of a sudden, God's presence comes and fills Hughes Auditorium in Wilmore, Kentucky. And a worship service doesn't end. It just keeps going. And more students begin to come and faculty begin to come and classes get canceled and repentance is taking place at the altar. People are getting saved. There's tears because of the tangible, the breaking in of God's presence into a room among a generation that is much like the generation that says that they knew not the Lord, neither did they know his works. But all of a sudden now God shows up and they taste and they see that God's real, that God's good, that God's powerful. And it becomes an outpouring of global proportions. I was seeing pictures as the week goes on of signs in Wilmore, Kentucky, street signs, traffic signs that says town closed because of revival. 10,000 people on the front lawn of Hughes Auditorium and another 10,000 scattered across four auditoriums. This is going 24-7 and it doesn't end until the school just decides we can't do this forever. But it impacted over 30 other universities. We had some of our school of ministry students who drove down there all night, got in the middle of it. It, it like got on them and they came back and came and they were leading our 8 a.m. prayer meeting on a Thursday. And I had just gotten back from Mexico. And the 8 a.m. prayer meeting was supposed to go from eight to nine, but yet it kept going for eight days. And we began to see a generation of young people in our church begin to be awakened that God's presence is with us, that God is real, tasting and seeing the goodness of the glory of God. There's repentance, there's salvation, there's restoration of relationships, there's hope revived again. We start calling Sunday night services and we, we have the largest crowds we've ever had. Our room seats 1,200 people. We had to turn cars away, 1,800 people crammed into that room and we had to send them away and it was just Nothing, but we're going after God. We're worshiping. We're going to rebuild the altar of the Lord. We're going to rebuild it. We're going to call people to tear down the altars of Baal in their life and rebuild the altar of the Lord. And people were coming from other states and gathering. And this was happening in Kalamazoo, but it's happening all over the United States. And for us, it took on about a three-week period of time, and then it began to kind of soften. And I asked the Lord, I'm like, God, I've been praying for revival my whole life. I long for my kids to see it. I believe it was what I was born for. What did I do wrong? Why did you, you came, but where did you go? And the Lord said, just spoke it as clear as day. He says, it was my mercy. And I thought, well, what does that mean? He said, it was my mercy just giving you a sample, a Costco sample of what revival tastes like and what is in store. See, I think that what we just experienced in 2023 was God's mercy. It was like spit on the windshield. You guys know what I'm talking Like you're driving down the road. You haven't had rain in a long time. All of a sudden you get the little drops on the windshield. You're like, I think it's raining. Is it raining? Is that rain? A little spit, that's what we call it. You hit your windshield wipers, wipe it off, and then a little bit more. What does that do? It indicates of what's up ahead. Church, we, we are living in 2023 in a moment where God has said, do I have your attention? There's a battle for the altar that's going on, and you're living in the midst of it. 
This is not a time to hide out in the caves. This is not a time to compromise and accommodate. This, this is a turning point for the church in America. It's a turning point for America. It's a turning point for a generation. God's like, do I have your attention yet? Because if you will give me your full attention, if you will respond to the mandate to tear down the altar of Baal in repentance and the places where the enemy has been allowed to infiltrate in our lives and in the church and in our compromised and apathetic and complacent attitudes and really begin to rebuild the presence of the Lord and every revival begins with a cry and a cry out to God, God, do it in our generation. Here's the promise. God says, I'll come. One of my favorite things to do, Jane and I's date day is, <coughs> is Fridays and we'll go to Costco. She goes shop, I like the samples. <clears throat> you can work your way through there. You don't even have to buy lunch. It's like you get those little corn chips with the salsa and then the little roll bean burrito things and then the chocolate covered coconut almonds. So good. Smoothies, chocolate milk, chips, popcorn. The poor lady who's handing out vitamins, nobody wants that. Do you know why Costco does that? It's not because they're in a boardroom going, you know, what could we do really nice for our customers? Let's just, let's spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and just give samples away. No, they do it because they're drug dealers. <laughs> they're pushers. And just like a drug dealer hires drug dealers to stand out on the corner to give out drugs, Costco hires Little old ladies with hairnets on. They're dealers. Standing in the corner of the aisles going, first one's always free. Their little microwaves, not yet. And then they hand them to you. Because here's what they know. They know this. You'll never hunger for something you've never tasted. You only will hunger and thirst for something that you have tasted. And they know if we can get you to taste it, you'll buy the real thing. The Bible says there's a generation that neither knows the Lord nor his works. It just takes one moment of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. For a generation, the most unchurched generation in America, Gen Z, the most disconnected, connected to everything, belonging to very little, the most anxious, the most depressed generation in American history. Do we really think God's gonna pass by that generation? No, God's marked that generation. God has marked Gen Z and Alpha generation. And he's done it at a time when darkness has thrown everything against their identity, everything against their sexuality, everything against their purity, everything against their future. The spirit of Baal has lied, given them an alternative eschatology about the end of the age. It's called climate change. He's caused them to be challenged in their identity and to cut themselves and to rave and to experiment with hallucinogenics and to be connected and view their body as plastic instead of sacred. And it caused them to see life as disposable instead of ordained and destined. But in the middle of that generation, God is saying to the church, get in. Stand up out of the wine press. 
You mighty man of valor, you mighty church of valor, there's a generation to win. And if we will respond and say, God, in our lives, we're tearing down. We're gonna contend for the faith once and for all delivered. We're gonna expose the works of darkness and we're gonna destroy the stronghold of the enemy, starting in me and then in the church. And then we're gonna face outwardly and we're gonna say now to a generation that is looking, needs to taste and see in the midst of this community, in the midst of churches, thousands of them across America, God is going to rebuild the altar of the Lord, an altar of his presence. He's gonna restore the primacy of his presence. He's gonna remove the impurities of syncretism. He's gonna rebuild the corporate altar of prayer, corporate prayer, and then he's gonna release an army of courageous Gideons all throughout the land. And what we're gonna see, I believe, the spit on the windshield is gonna turn into the reins of revival. I believe that God is saying to the church, if you will respond in this hour and see the urgency of this hour and turn your hearts back towards me, we will see the greatest harvest out of this generation that we have ever seen in American history. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of people swept into the kingdom of God. Last week at Pirate's Cove out in California, which was the site of baptism during the Jesus people movement of the late 60s, they once again are baptizing in that very same spot. They baptized 10,000 people last week. God is on the move. But the enemy wants to blind you and keep you from seeing and responding to the hour in which we're living. And listen, this is an hour for us to say, God, move, God, come. It started in me. Would you stand with me? One of the most beautiful parts of how Jesus called his disciples in the book of Acts is when they were, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, and they began to preach with boldness, which is one of the things God's gonna to restore to the church is boldness. As they began to preach with boldness in the midst of persecution and, and imprisonment, all the things, oh, I don't know what I did. I called the police, sorry about that. <laughs> in the midst of all of that, when they brought them in, to intimidate them and tell them, stop preaching in Jesus' name. Stop telling people that Jesus saves, that he can forgive them, that he can heal them, that they don't need religion, that they need a relationship. Stop that. It says that they recognized that they were uneducated men, which means they weren't qualified in the flesh, and that they had been with Jesus. It says, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. I love that because if you've been with Jesus, it rubs off. It gets on you. It becomes a fragrance that stirs hunger and thirst in other people. And today is a day for us, for every one of us, I, I really believe, to decide which altar we're gonna give our lives to build. Are we gonna allow the enemy to build strongholds and altars over our life and just become victims that hide out in caves and wait to go to heaven? Or are we gonna be people that tear down the altars of Baal in our own hearts and say, in the midst of this generation, I'm gonna give my life to building the altar of the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me all over the room?
Holy Spirit, today, would you speak to us as only you can. Lord, I, I can't draw anybody to you. You said no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. But Holy Spirit, I know you're moving here in this moment, this moment. This is a wine press moment. Jesus, would you whisper to each of us what you're calling us to? Holy Spirit, today, I know that in this room there are people that are prodigals, have a history with you, faith with you, but they've left it behind in pursuit of the pig pen, things of this world. And I'm not saying that in judgment. I just know that it's true. And right now that there's a battle that's going on in our hearts right now. There's a battle at this moment in hearts all across this room. Will you repent and surrender to Jesus as Lord and today becomes a defining moment or will you just get through the next few moments and walk out and resume hiding in the cave and allowing the altar of Baal to be built over your life? Prodigals, you've run from God. You've chosen sin and today he's calling you to repent, turn, be restored and forgiven so that you can become a Gideon. Today, in the sound of my voice, I know that there's people in this room that you're asking God questions. Why? Why has all this happened to me? Why? Why am I in the place that I am? And maybe you're here today and you've never had a defining moment where you said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't fix myself. I believe in you. Save me. Be my savior today. And today is a salvation moment for you. But in both of those cases, here's, here's the overlying banner over this moment is if you're not right with God and you know it, it's because the Holy Spirit's pulling on your heart and the Father is saying, come to me and I will save you, forgive you, restore you. Today, I'll push back the enemy. I'll remove the burden of shame and guilt off of you. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit in you so that you can walk with me and fulfill your purpose in life. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of returning. And I'm gonna lead the room in a prayer in 30 seconds. But before we do that, if that's you today, you know the battle for the altar in your own heart is being waged at this moment. Today, let Jesus win. I'm gonna to count to three. And when you hear me say three, if today, doesn't matter if it's your first time or you're a prodigal and you need to return, you say, I need to get right with Jesus and today's the day. Today I'm saying, yes, Jesus, forgive me, save me, come into my life. When you hear me say three, I want you to boldly raise your hand and hold it up. This is the break point today. This is where we break the chains. This is where we cast off darkness. This is where new life comes to us. Here we go. One, two, three, all over the room. Now, raise it and raise it high, boldly, confidently. Thank you, 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 thank you. All the way, if you're on the left side of the room, I just sense there's a battle being waged on the, my left, your right. If that's you, I, I feel like there's some people who are like, you wanna put your hand up, but you just, you're ashamed to do it or you're, it's time to do it. If that's you, you raise it. Jesus is gonna save, he's gonna rescue, he's gonna restore. Thank you. 
hands went up all over the room. Here's what we're gonna do. All of us are gonna pray this out loud together. And those of you who raise your hands, Jesus is your audience. He sees and he saves and he restores. There's some young people in this room. There's a call of God on your life. And today is the starting point of that. This isn't, I'm saved. I'm gonna be a nice little church kid that comes and sits in a chair. No, you were created to be a prophet to your culture. And today is the starting point of that. I want everybody to pray this out loud. Say, Heavenly Father, I come in Jesus' name and I ask you, save me. Rescue me and deliver me. I believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, Lord of all, and I repent from worshiping anything else. Today I break the power of idols and I reject the wisdom of this world, and I choose Jesus. Come into my heart, sit on the throne, and build your altar here. I surrender all to you. From this day forward, I belong to Jesus. Thank you for loving me, saving me, delivering me, in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Come on, can we celebrate? <laughs> Radiant Church, I, I believe with all of my heart that God is gonna raise this church up to be a prophetic fountainhead in this city of prayer and presence that reaches the next generation in Jesus' name. Come on, let's celebrate that, Pastor David. Let's receive that. We receive that, right? Do you receive that? Thank you. It's a great word. Right on. Thank you, Pastor Lee. I just want to receive it as a church. I just love that last declaration right there. Ushers are going to come forward. We're going to take just a moment as part of our, we're doing two things at once. We're going to take up our offering. We're going to receive this. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask what you have for us. Lord, would we be vertical, stay close enough with you and to you that those things come to fruition in our church, in this city, right in the middle of America. We ask in Jesus' name, Father, in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in this city, we're gonna build the altar of the Lord. I'm gonna tear down altars to Baal. Tear, tear down all the things that would take up allegiance and affection and worship and adore God. So God, we receive this today. We pray, Lord Jesus, Help us, strengthen us. We need God. We honor you. Take what we give. God, use it to make a difference here. This week, as young people get in vans and buses and minivans and travel here, airplanes, God, use it, Lord God. Help us. Lord, even this week, as there's a specific call for young people to be overseas missionaries, Lord God, we just need you. Come, bless it, strengthen us. Even as Will talked about our, sorry, even as Lee talked about our new building, God, I pray that, that, Lord, you would use that space, Lord Jesus. We just pray for that new space, a prayer space, an evangelism space, a discipleship space, calling the next generation space. God, use it. We love you. We give cheerfully and we give gladly. In Jesus' name.